Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we conclude our study through the second book of the Bible. You remember that God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. He demonstrated his power as in the plagues, as he separated the Red Sea. He's given them manna. He's given them water. He's given them everything they need. And now in the Ten Commandments, he provides them with instructions to live by. These commands, this instruction is given all the way through the Pentateuch, but they're summarized in the Ten Commandments or the Greek Decalogue, the Ten Words, and these become the moral law for Israel, in fact, the moral law for all Western civilization. But God gave this law not just to make good citizens. He gave us this law for a specific purpose. The law is our teacher. The law is our tutor. The law tells us in every command, this is so high, you cannot obey this on your own. The bar is too high to jump. You need a Savior to do that. You need to trust in someone who has jumped the bar for you. And so every command, the purpose of the law, is to remind us of three things. Our sinfulness reminds us of our need for a Savior, and it reminds us of our need to trust God every day for his enabling power to obey. We can't come to Christ on our own. We can't obey him on our own. It's God working through us. The law, and we've emphasized this throughout the Ten Commandments, was never meant to guide us into a relationship with God. The law, by keeping the law, we can never have a relationship with God. The basis of salvation, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, has always been grace. It has to be a free gift. It can't be something that is, it's not something that's earned or deserved. The means is always faith, trusting in God. And the, and the object of our faith is always who? It's always Jesus, right? Whether we're in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to this coming Messiah that God promises us. When we're in the New Testament, we're looking back to the Messiah who came. It's always by grace, always faith, and always Jesus. Commandments are divided into two parts. Commandments 1 through 4, vertical, our reverence for God. Commandments 6 through 10, horizontal, our respect and getting along with each other. Today we want to look at the last two commandments. Here is number 9. Commandment number 9, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, strictly speaking, False testimony against your neighbor, strictly speaking, is what? It's, it's perjury, right, in the court of law. You are never to testify for someone you know to be guilty. You are never to testify against someone you know to be innocent. And even today, before you testify, what do you do? You raise your right hand and you say, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Justice, justice has to have truth in order for it to survive. Justice cannot survive without truth. Now, as in all the other commands, there are different layers to this. So we have false witness, but as you unpack it throughout Scripture, there is this, this general uh, speaking of this commandment, and it's regarding lying, not telling the truth in any shape, in any form. 
So we'll start with the basic question. Why is lying prohibited? I mean, you got to admit, it comes in handy sometimes, doesn't it? Maybe it should be like some people regard alcohol, you know, uh, moderation, not in excess. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the little white lie, really, to just kind of make our side of the story. Well, what I want to do is to take a quick survey of Scripture, five quick points, and then we're going to look at the family of lies that go beyond just the outright lie. First thing you want to see, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, so jot these down. You can uh, reflect on these on your own. The first thing is this, lying is in direct opposition to the character of God. Lying is in direct opposition to the character of God. Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. It goes on to say, has he not said it and will it not come true? God always keeps his promises. Our salvation, our eternity is based on that characteristic of God. If he promises us something, He's going he's to make it happen. Secondly, God despises lying. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 19, there are six things, no, seven things the Lord despises are detestable to him. He hates pride, haunting eyes, a lying tongue, comma, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rust to judgment, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict. There's one for you, isn't it? A person who stirs up conflict in the community. So of the seven things that God says, I don't like, they are detestable to me, two of them are lying. Number three, lying is futile. We know that. We know we're going to get caught. It's futile. Proverbs 2017 Food gained by fraud tastes sweet. It always does at first, doesn't it? But in the end, it's a mouth, you, you end up with a mouthful of gravel. Proverbs chapter 12, uh, verse 19. Truthful lips endure forever. You tell the truth, it just keeps on going. You don't have to back up and, and think, oh, what did I tell that person? What did I tell that person? Man, when you're lying, that's a lot of work. But truthful lips, they endure forever. A lying tongue lasts only for a moment. Number four, lying harms other people. Proverbs 25, 18, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against his neighbor. You might as well club him over the head or shoot him with an arrow. That's what you're doing verbally. That's what lying does. And then the last one, the liar the liar cannot be a true believer. Now, if you're a true believer, there are going to be times when we break every one of these commandments, right? Okay, guys, right? Okay. Just wanted to make sure you're agreeing with me on that. We are, we are commandment breakers, saved by God's grace. The law reminds us that we fell again. We need to repent. We need to ask his forgiveness. Abraham did that. Remember? Told, uh, told uh, a, a, a foreign king that his wife was his sister. Uh, David did it in uh, 1 Samuel 20. Peter, Matthew chapter 26. Remember? I never, knew, I never knew the man. So godly people, sometimes out of self-protection or whatever, we're going we're gonna to slip and lie. But there are people 
who are characterized by lying. And those people cannot be a true believer. That's what God's Word says, Revelation chapter 21, 8. But the cowardly, not a believer who is a coward at some point, but those whose lives are characterized by coward. The unbelieving, the vile, murderers, again, characterized by murdering, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolatry, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake, a burning sulfur. This is the second death. When, when, when a believer lies, we say, man, that's out, of, that's out of character. I'm surprised. When some people lie, you say, what? <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Because it has characterized their life. Now, here's a question that we want to deal with before we move on. We'll not take a lot of time for this, but it's a question we need to, need to ask. Is there ever a time when lying is okay? St. Augustine said there were eight different levels of lies, some of them okay. Martin Luther said there were three types of lies, the humorous lie, the joke, um, the helpful lie to protect one's neighbor, and then the harmful lie. Many people, when they're talking about this, they always go to Joshua chapter 2, where Joshua is sending the spies into Jericho. Remember the story? And uh, the people of Jericho, the leaders of Jericho, learn that the spies are there, and so they have to go hide, and they find a house to hide in, and it's Rahab's house, Rahab the prostitute. And uh, officials come to Rahab and, and Rahab, and they say, Rahab, have you seen the spies? And she says, no, no, but... Well, I did see them. They went that way, and they really went that way. And uh, Rahab, it said, uh, when uh, Jericho was knocked down, her family was saved. And so people always say, well, because she lied, then God rewarded her. That's not why God rewarded her. God rewarded her because of her faith, not because of her lie. See, here's the deal. If we say there are times when lying is okay, what did we just do? We made lying relative. We just put it in a case of situational ethics. It's an absolute. There is never a time. It's a commandment. There's never a time when lying is right. Now, just like murder, if someone's coming at our family, I mean, we don't want to kill anyone, but if someone's coming at our family... We're going to protect our family, right? Lying is never not a sin. There may be a time when we lied to protect our family. Michael Horton says it like this. A lie, even in the interest of the greater good, is always a sin. So that's the point I'm trying to make. This is not relative. This is not situational ethics here. It's always of sin, even though one might be required by one's conscience to lie in order to, for instance, save a neighbor's life. Here, a lie is still evil, a lesser evil, compared to murder. But here's the deal. We like to debate that one, don't we? But that's not where we live. Our challenges with lies are work when no life's at stake. 
at home. We're not protecting anyone else's life. Now, we like to stay here because that's nice and high and we can, we can play the philosophical stuff, right? But our issue's right here. And we got to know that a lie is a lie. I was writing, I, I, I write these devos, you, some of you get them in the mornings, and I said something in one, you know, if your wife asks you if she looks good in that, it's better to say yes. And a guy called me, called me on that, a good friend. He said, you know, is that, was that wise to say? And I got to thinking about it. It's not wise to say. I mean, if, if, if you can't tell the one you love the most, the safest area you have, you know what, honey, I love you. But I don't know. I don't know. Because you know what? If you, if you don't think she looks good in it, probably you're going to be 500 other people who don't either. So you might be protecting her. And same with her. Lori is, Lori is the person I listen to most in critiquing writing and sermon. I can hear from you guys, and I love you guys, and I appreciate it. I hear from you guys, but Lori can say, you know what? That didn't make sense. And I'm thinking, I got to check. I got to go back and check that. I got to be clearer there. We've got to be talking, don't you think? As husband and wife, honestly, to each other. All right, so we've got these lies, the basis of them. Let's look at the family of lies. There are a bunch of them. I'll go through them quickly. The first is slander. Malicious, false statements about someone else to tear them down, to make them look bad. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21 Paul is writing to believers, <clears throat> so he's saying, hey, you guys got some issues in your life. We all have issues, right? You got these issues in your life. Here's some things you've got to get rid of. Work on getting rid of them. Paul wouldn't say get rid of them if you didn't have them. We have them, so let's work on getting rid of them. Bitterness, it eats us up. Rage and anger, brawling, and there it is, slander, along with every form of malice. Don't do that. Slander, one person said, a scorpion carries poison in his tail, a slanderer carries poison in his tongue, the wounds of a tongue no physician can heal. And to pretend friendship to a man and then slander him is the most odious. That is, isn't it? To pretend you really like someone and then you're ripping them behind their back. Gossip is the next one. Won't take time to read this one, but Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, just jot that down. Gossip is spreading truthful or untruthful information about someone aimed at hurting them. Someone told me one time, well, it's truthful, that's not gossip. No, if you're hurting someone, even with the truth that you know, that's gossip. By the way, by the way, when you look up that Romans passage, you're going to see a whole long list of sin, right? And you're going to see sexual immorality. And you're going to see homosexuality in there. And then gossip and all these other things. Now, we love to pull out the things like homosexuality because that's really a bad sin. Right? And if we can pull that out of the list and we can point to that really bad one, then gossip doesn't seem so bad, does it? But it's right there. It's right in the list. There's no asterisk by it like, this one's okay. I just had to put it in the list, but it's okay. But as believers, if believers, if we can pull out those other ones and we can make a big deal of that, 
we can make it part of our platform, political platforms. That's the bad one. We're okay. No, God says, you missed the bar. You sinned. Deal with it. Flattery is the next one. Flattery is insincere praise in order to gain acceptance or favor. In Psalm 12, David described the flatterer as one who has a double heart, two hearts. Someone said flattery is saying things to a person's face that you would never say behind their back. Trying to win their favor. Half-truths is another one. Telling your preferred side of the story. I don't do much marriage. I don't do hardly any marriage counseling anymore, but there was a time I did. And I, I promise you, man, there, there were times I'd meet with a, a wife, right? And she would come in and she'd tell her side of the story. And I would say, you are married to Satan himself. <laughs> Can't understand how you've stayed with him. Then the husband would come in. And then I'd change my mind. No, you're married to Satan. The feminine side of Satan. Man, we love to tell our side of the story, don't we? So um, years ago, we had this intern here, great guy, Shane Freeman. I'd actually coached him in junior high, and he was a a good guy. He's now pastoring a church in in, uh, Charlotte. And so he was here, and he lived in Texas. Uh, Lori and the kids, it was in the summer. Lori and the kids had gone to Oklahoma and uh, I was going to fly out and be with them in Oklahoma for a couple of weeks and then, and then drive back. And Shane uh, was flying out to go to Texas. So an elder at the church was driving both of us to the airport. So we get in the car and the elder's driving. His wife's in the front seat. We're in the back. And we're going to the airport. This elder, right? This is many years ago. We were younger. This elder who's supposed to be demonstrating to us what a law-abiding lawkeeper is, right? He gets pulled over by a high patrolman on the way to the airport. Shane and I thought that was hilarious in the back seat. We didn't laugh loud because we still needed a ride to the airport. That's the truth. Wouldn't you think that's kind of ridiculous, an elder getting pulled over by a patrolman? And then, oh, there's still, there's a, here's the other side of the story. This has never happened. I've never seen this happen before. I've never seen it happen after. I always wanted it to happen to me. The high patrolman went up. The elder rolled down his window, and here's what the Habitronist said. I'm sorry, sir, I pulled over the wrong car. <laughs> Can you believe that? Shane and I were so irritated in the back. We wanted him to get a ticket. So if you just tell the first part, it's true. Everything I told you in the first part is true. It's just kind of half the truth. We're good at that, aren't we? Just our side of the story. Silent lie is the next one. You don't have to open your mouth to lie. Someone comes to you and says something derogatory about a person. All you got to do is kind of roll your eyes. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And you disagree. Silent lie. Silence is agreement. Silence is agreement. You can't sit around and not say anything and then on the other side of it, have all these issues with it. Silence is agreement. Hypocrisy is the next one. Turn over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Paul is uh, writing to the church in uh, Galatia, and uh, he calls out the apostle Peter big time. 
So Peter, remember, was the apostle that God uh, gave the vision that the Gentiles are going to be part of my family. They just, the Jews just thought they could be a part of the family. And now uh, Peter got the vision that the Gentiles are going to be a part. He goes and tells the Gentiles, Cornelius, remember? So um, look at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, James was in Jerusalem. So before certain men came from Jews from Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Before the Jews were there, he had no problem sitting down and eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to drink. He wouldn't sit at their table anymore. He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcised group. The other Jews joined him in their what? Hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, the encourager. Can you believe Barnabas joined them as well? Man, hypocrisy just, like, just sucks everybody in, doesn't it? And so Paul called him out. Peter, you can't do that. Peter's a believer, strong believer. Be crucified upside down. But he blew it here. Hypocrisy is wrong. It's part of lying. And, you know, we need, we need to be such a community that when we see other believers living lives of, of hypocrisy, we would gently go to them and let them know that and restore them because it looks bad, on, looks bad for Christ, right? And it sucks other people in. Here's the last one, false profession, <clears throat> false profession. Every, every lie is damaging. This one has eternal impact. Here's the person who lies to himself. Here's the person who lies to herself. They say, you know, I signed the card. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I'm a, I, I sing the songs. I go to the Christmas Eve services. I mix in Easter. I'm a, I'm a believer. But there's absolutely no evidence in their life. We've got we to address these issues. We live in a time where you just pray the prayer, man. That's it. See, true conversion is a, takes place when God transforms our heart. In Christ, you're a new creation. Old is gone. New has come. You can't say, here I am. I trust in Christ, and here I am. It's here I am, I trust in Christ, and my life changes. A few verses here. 1 John, if we claim, there's the false professor, we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 1 John 2, 4. It's the next one. Whoever says, I know him, I signed the card. I went to that event. And I sign the card, I'm in. But does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. One more, 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims, there's that profession again, to love God yet hates his brother and sister is a what? It's a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. Our life has to change. And again, all the other lies are bad. This one has, all the other lies have consequences. This one has eternal consequences. You've got to know in your heart, I know for certain 
I'm not lying here to myself. I trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Believers must be committed to the truth with their heart, with their lips, and with their, with their lives. We have to be those above all people who tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth every day, everywhere, every situation. All right, last one. You shall not covet. So you get a text, you're to go to the conference room, and there's going to be a big announcement. There's a job that uh, you're up for. And you get in there, and the boss comes in, and here's the announcement. I want to congratulate. I'm glad for everyone who uh, put their name in. I want to congratulate Liam. Liam gets the job. And you clap like everybody else, right? And inside, you go shake hands with Liam, and you say congratulations, but inside, you're saying, that's not right. You're simmering. You get a text from one of your closest friends. The text says, can you talk? You say, oh, yeah, I can talk. And you call them, and uh, she says, I'm getting married. Will you be my maid of honor? And you scream, and she screams, and you say, I'd love to. But when you hang up, you can't believe that you're going to be in the wedding party again, again, and not be the bride. You have four kids, and you still have that same old mid-size car. Every Sunday when you come to church, you have to put the kid in strategically as they put their legs over each other so they fit in. Your car's so old and beat up, there's a bumper sticker on it that says, if this car was a horse, I'd shoot it. (laughs) I don't know why that was so funny to me, but it is. (laughs) You pull into church, and you park right by the Thomases. I don't know who the Thomases are. I don't know if you're here today. I hope you're not. I hope your name's not Thomas. Park right by the Thomases, and, 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 their, and their car doors, your kids are piling out, their car door opens by itself. <laughs> and little Wilma, their only child, little Wilma, jumps out. And you say, man, that is not right. Life always looks greener on the other side, doesn't it? Then there's that 10th commandment. Don't covet. To covet means to have a deep and, per- and, and passionate, intense longing for something that you don't have. Sometimes uh, it's defined as greed, taking all you can get. Sometimes it's defined as avarice, an insatiable desire for wealth. Sometimes it's defined as envy, discontent with what you have and, and craving something you don't have, something another person has. It's interesting, this one breaks down to four things. Uh, God explains it to us. First, he says, don't covet your neighbor's possessions. Here, specifically, don't covet your neighbor's house, but that would include everything, boat, car, whatever your neighbor has. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. Secondly, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet, don't covet your neighbor's spouse, wife or husband. Don't covet the most precious, intimate relationship that God has provided for that person. 
Don't covet your neighbor's position. Here it's described as don't covet your manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey. Those were things in that day that would be like an em- employees and, and tools that allowed a person to have a certain position. Don't covet a, per- a certain a person's position. And then if we miss anything or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The principle behind this is God gave them everything. God owns everything, right? So whatever he gave, whatever they have, he gave to them. Now how they're using it is their business before God. They're going to be accountable to that. You deal with what God has given you. The Ten Commandments stated in the positive is be content with who you are and be content with what you have. I know it's hard. Content with who you are. Content with what you have. By the way, coveting is at the heart of every sin. One commentator said, really, coveting can be seen in all the top nine. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, you remember Satan tempted Eve, and she saw the apple, or not the apple, the fruit. I don't know if it was an apple or it was a fruit. She saw that it was desirable, remember? And then what'd she do? She took it. She saw, she wanted, she took it. Achan in chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 7. He saw, he wanted, he took. David in uh, 2 Samuel uh, 11, remember? He saw Bathsheba, he wanted Bathsheba, he took Bathsheba. Saw, wanted, took. Coveting is in the heart of every sin. So God says, can you trust me? Can you, can you trust me that I gave you what I want you to have? Can you trust me that I'm in sovereign control of your life? Can you trust me that I put you in that family I put you in? Can you trust me that I put you in the time of history I put you in, in a certain area of the world? I gave you the the makings of your personality. Your possessions are a gift from me. Paul says it so well in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's gift to me. Discontentment, on the other hand, is a pervasive dissatisfaction with God. I don't like what you have given me. I don't like the cards you dealt. It eats away at us because we feel like God has shortchanged us. People who are discontent spend most of their lives wishing their lives away. Contentment says I'm satisfied with God. Jot down. Jot down Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Philippians 4, 11, you remember Paul, what Paul says? He said, Paul says, I know what it is um, to, be, uh, to have plenty, and I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to be full, and I know what it is to be starving. I know what it is to have clothes and be warm, and I know what it is to be cold. And then what's he say, remember? I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. Something you learn, something God teaches us. Doesn't come natural, but God says, I'm in charge, giving you everything that you need. Will you be content? So, Leo Tolstoy tells a story 
How much land does a man need is the name of the story. How much land does a man need? And it's a story about um, a peasant named Pahom, Russian peasant named Pahom. And Pahom says, busy we are from our childhood, tilling Mother Earth. We peasants will always die as we are living we, uh, with, with nothing of our own. If, on, if only we had our own land, it would be different. One day, a landowner sold a very small estate. So Pahom and his wife gathered all their savings. They sold some of their animals. They took their son and, and put him out as a laborer, hired him out as a laborer. They borrowed money from their relatives, and they purchased this 40-acre farm, and Pahom was content for a little while. Then he bought a much larger farm, and he was content for a little while. One day he was at his farm, and this guy came through, and this guy told the story. Over in the, in the land of the Bashkers, you could buy all kinds of land. In fact, I just came back, this guy said, and I bought 13,000 acres of land for 1,000 rubies. It's cheap over there. And Pahom couldn't resist, man. He left. He left his family. He left his farm, and he headed for the Baskers. The land of the Baskers was just like the guy told him. It was rich, and it was fertile. And Pahom was told that he could have all the land that he could walk around in a day, just like the Oklahoma was settled, you know, with the Cherokee Strip run, you could get all the land that you staked out. Anything you staked out would be yours. The chief said, "All will be yours." The chief said, "But there's one condition: if you don't return on the same day to the spot whence you started, your money will be lost." So the next morning, the chief of the Baskers got his big old fur hat and and he put it on the ground, and that was the starting point. And and Pahom uh, uh, started off. He had a spade with him. And at every corner, he was to dig a hole, and that was to mark that corner of his land. And you can imagine what happened. He wanted more land, and he tried for too much. Here's how Tolstoy ends the story. Oh, dear, Pahom thought, if only I had not blundered trying for too much. What if I'm late? What shall I do? I have grasped too much and ruined the whole affair. I can't get back before the sun sets. And this fear made him even more breathless. Behom was running, his soaking shirt and trousers stuck to him. His mouth was parched. His breast was working like a blacksmith bellows. His heart was beating like a hammer. And his legs were giving way as if they didn't belong to him. Behom was seized with terror lest he should die of the strain. Though afraid of death, he could not stop. The sun was about to set. With all his remaining strength, he rushed on, bending his body forward so that his legs could hardly follow fast enough to keep him from falling. Pahom took one long, deep breath and ran up the hill. He saw the fur hat, starting point, or the ending point now. Before it sat the chief, laughing and holding his sides. Pahom uttered a cry. His legs gave way beneath him. He fell forward and reached for the cap with his hands. Oh, that's a fine fellow, The chief said, he gained much land. Baham's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but saw blood was coming from his mouth. Baham was dead. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Baham to to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all the land he needed. How much land does a man need? 
in the end, just enough to be buried in. Hey, how many cool cars does a man need? In the end, just one. It's a rental. It's called a hearse. It comes with the package. <laughs> how many houses does a man need? In the end, just one. The size of a casket. How much money does a man need in his bank account? Got to have a lot, right? In the end, you're going to leave it all behind. How many friends? How many friends does a man need? In the end, just one. And his name better be Jesus. In the end, it is Jesus and eternal life that we should covet. In the end, it is Jesus and eternal life that we should crave. In the end, it is Jesus and eternal life that we should long for. We should be craving and longing for a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ, so that one day when we stand before him, he's not going to ask us, how much land did you have? Only thing that's going to matter is our relationship with him. And when we have that true relationship with him, not a false profession, but that true relationship with him, he's going to say what? Well done good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy all the land, all the kingdom that I prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It is all yours by grace. Don't you want to hear that? Well done. Father, we confess to you that we look a lot more like the culture than we do like Jesus. We confess to you that we like to invest in stuff now, not in eternity. We confess to you that we crave things that are temporal and that rust and decay and rot. And when we think about that, we think how foolish that is, and yet we do it. I do it. So we confess our sin before you. We want to be those who crave you. We want to be those who long for you. We want to be those who demonstrate with our life that we are a child of King. We want to demonstrate what a, what a true believer, a person whose life has been transformed, looks like. That's what we desire. That's what we long for. That's what we crave. Father, help that to be the, the theme of our life. And Lord, help us to know. Help us to just think clearly. If we're going to hear, well done, in the future, that, that, that means we've got to be doing things today. Can't put it off. Because we don't know when that time before you is going to be. So help us to, to truly do our business with you and be that light that you've called us to be.
I pray, Lord, everyone here makes certain they have that one friend. Jesus. Only Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.